Every time we sing that hymn, I think about the account in the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah was standing and he was seeing the Lord, and that was his response, was holy, holy, holy. And he was taken back by what he saw. He was taken back by the reality of not only who God was, but he was taken back, I think, even more by the reality of his own nature and who he was. And yet, he responded in a way that we should respond. And we should respond understanding that God is perfectly holy, he is perfectly righteous, and that he demands our praise and demands our worship. Well, tonight I want you to turn with me to the 111th Psalm, Psalm 111. Uh, Two Sundays ago, we began, on Sunday morning, we looked at the first few verses of this psalm, and of course, last Sunday, we began uh, looking at our confession of faith again. So I wanted to return to this psalm uh, tonight, and we entitled this psalm the Psalm of God's Works, or the Psalm of God's Workings. And we dealt with the reality that this was one of the hallelujah psalms. Uh, This is one of the psalms that begins with the phrase, praise ye the Lord, which means literally hallelujah. And it makes up a number of the hallelujah psalms. And the writer of the psalms we see is not indicated here in the title. Some of the psalms were given who is the writer. This one does not tell us who it is. But we notice that the writer in that very first verse uh, says, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. And he's introducing a subject here. And we talked a little bit about this, how that it is a psalm that is meant to excite us or a psalm to bring us to a place of praise and a place of worship. It's a place that is intended for those who belong to the body or to the church of Christ. He's inviting us to join Him in praising God. And uh, we're praising Him for many things. We praise God for His gracious acts in our life. We praise God for the many things that He's done, how He provides for us, how He's been mindful of His covenant towards us, and how we can take comfort in knowing that his covenant will never change, that his, his works and his actions, uh, they are in fact immutable. And the psalm itself ends with another term or another hallelujah. And it is found there at the end, the very last verse says, his praise endureth forever. So the psalmist says, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. And we looked at how the invitation is being given here in verse 1. The invitation to praise the works of the Lord. And how His work should be praised with our whole heart. Our our worship and our praise should never be done uh, in a light manner. Uh, we should never consider that when we praise God, we're praising Him. And it's, it's, it, it isn't... Uh, uh, that important or that it doesn't matter uh, that if we if we just come to God and we just praise in a lackadaisical manner no we we are to praise God with our whole heart we're to praise God with everything that we that we are remember the heart is not just the the, the heart that beats in our chest it's the the entirety of our being it's the entirety of who we are our soul our mind our spirit we are to to worship God our, our minds should be completely oh given over to the worship of God That's what the psalmist has in mind here. And when we come to public worship, 
uh, we are to prepare ourselves for that. We're to prepare ourselves to worship. Uh, this is not something that we just kind of arrive and, and we expect somebody to bring us into a state of worship. You, uh, w- there, there isn't a worship leader here today. Uh, your, your worship is a preparation that you prepare your heart to worship God in, 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 before you ever get here. Public worship is one of those privileges that, that we as the body of Christ, uh, we should look forward to assembling together. And what are we praising God for? We, we recite his works to one another. We recite how good he's been to us, how, how he's been ever mindful of us. And yet, these very first words, these words of the psalmist, he's inviting us to praise the Lord with him. In the next two verses, we looked at in verse number two and three, we dealt with this a couple Sundays ago, that how verses two and three call us to examine the adoration of the works of the Lord. And he gives us this very clear uh, declarative statement about the works. He says, the works of the Lord are great. Uh, The word great there is, is probably not even strong enough to declare just how great his works are. Uh, Our our minds um, have a difficult time completely grasping just how great God's works are. I was thinking about this this morning and, and trying to think that just when we think we understand how good God is, you find out he's even better. You find out he's better than what you even thought. He's better than tomorrow than he was today, at least in our minds. But yet God is always great. He's always good. He didn't change. It's, it's our mindset towards who God is, and it's the reminder of how good he is to us. When we view these works of the Lord, we could think about the great acts of God. We could think about his acts of creation. We could think about the acts in his providence and, and, and the knowledge that he gets But imagine that he says not only are these works great, he says they are sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. In other words, those that find great joy and adoration in the works of God, that's where we find our greatest source of pleasure is in the works of God. And there's no doubt that when we seek out God, those who know him, those who have a relationship with him, those who who have walked with him, they know that there's no greater pleasure than to know the works of God, especially the works of God towards us personally, how he's dealt with us personally. It is the greatness of God that allows us to see his greatness. We worship God and adore the Lord for his works of creation. And you realize that even if all we had to worship God with, all the only work that we could see was his creation, we would be obligated to worship him for that. But yet, he's given us thousands of things of his works. He's given us more than just his creation, which is glorious in and of itself, but he's shown us not only his creation, but his providential workings in our life. God's providence is comfort. It's comforting to know that nothing happens by accident. Nothing is random. Nothing is happening by chance. That God is providentially doing what he's doing and he does it 
And those are part of His works. And then in verse 3, we looked at how His work is honorable and glorious and His righteousness endureth forever. The psalmist now introduces this word righteousness and now this is that direct reference to where our righteousness comes from and it's from the very person of Christ who's described as the very image of God. Christ as the mediator between God and man. The one who is now ever living to make intercession for us. There is nothing that can be compared to the glory of Christ. There's nothing that can replace Him. There's nothing that can overtake Him. There's nothing more glorious than the work that Christ did in saving the soul of sinners. What He accomplished at the cross... Not what He just made possible, but what He actually accomplished by securing the salvation of His people. And all because of His loving kindness. Not because they were of value, or, but because of His goodness. The work of Christ and His work as a mediator. Notice He says His work is honorable and glorious. Every point of Christ is honorable. In his person, in his righteousness, in his perfect sacrifice, everything that we view in Christ is glorious. Christ kept the law perfectly. And because he kept the law perfectly, now we have this hope in him. Because you and I could not keep the law, all the works that we could do, all the effort we could make, We could not keep the law, but yet He kept the law perfectly. And because of His righteousness, now we are made the righteousness of God in Him. So now when I stand before God one day, and one day we are all going to stand before God, we will not be standing in our own righteousness. We'll be standing in the righteousness of Christ. And that's when the Bible says that we will be presented before the Father faultless and without blame. And how glorious is that? Because we know right now we're all filled with fault. We're we're filled with so much fault today, but somehow His righteousness, we're going to stand. He's going to present us before the Father. He's going to say, these are mine and they are faultless. I can't even imagine that because I know me, right? (laughs) How can I be faultless? And yet, we are made the righteousness of God in Him. To stand before that God and proclaim as Isaiah did, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. This praise leads us into verse number 4 which specifically says, and let's look at this together, he says, He hath made His wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. How do we know how wonderful He's been? We know how wonderful He has been because His Word declares His wonderful works. From Genesis to Revelation... His wonderful works are declared. Not only Christ's perfect life, but His sufferings, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Those are the things we most solemnly remember. 
We are told as one of the two ordinances until he comes to observe the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, when the brethren come together and we remember the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And we remember that is his glorious works. Those are indeed wonderful works. And his obedience. The Bible puts it this way, that he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Not a death he deserved to die, but a death that you and I deserve to die. And yet he's obedient unto death. And the Hebrews even describes it that the cross was the joy that was set before him. How could there be joy in a cross? What he was accomplishing there was his joy. That he was redeeming those that the Father had given to him. With all of their blemishes with all of their spots. And he said, I'm still, they are, I am giving them to you. All of God is set before us. When we think about the gospel, we are seeing who God is. We're seeing what God has done. And notice that he says these wonderful works are to be remembered. They are never to be forgotten. People often ask me, one of, the, one of the questions I've received over many, many years is, uh, what will we actually remember in heaven? Are we going to remember this battle that we had with our sin? Are we going to remember how difficult it was to live for the glory of God every single day? And honestly, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what we're going to be able to remember. But I do know this, that when we see Scripture that says we are going to be like Him and see Him as He is and be without sin, I think that's going to be a glorious thing to consider. How can I be without sin? How could I even come close to being like Him? And how could I even see Him as He is if I can only see Him because of the righteousness of Christ? And then notice this, and this, again, this psalm over the last few weeks, and this really was kind of the psalm I've been personally meditating on. And that phrase there, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. I thought it was a great statement if he just said he's compassionate. But actually it says he's full of compassion. He is full of this. His entirety is compassion. He is glorious. This is, this is the, this is, folks, this is what our souls need to know. And this is what we need to be reminded of. And we need to proclaim that from the housetops, that the Lord is compassionate and he is full of compassion and he's gracious. We need to remember how gracious he's been towards us and how compassionate not only has he been towards us, but how compassionate he continues to be towards us. Every day we need his compassion. Every day we need his mercies. As it says in Lamentations, his mercies are new every single day. That's what our, that's what our souls need tonight. We probably thought tonight that the most important thing that we needed maybe before we got here was we needed to sit down and 
maybe we had dinner together, maybe we had dinner by ourselves, and we thought the greatest thing I need today is I need a meal. And actually the greatest thing we needed was be reminded of how good and compassionate and how gracious God actually is. That's more spiritual food for the soul. Bodily food necessary, spiritual food even more important. To be filled and to be fed by the Word and to say, listen, I've been reminded again to remember how good and compassionate and gracious God has been to me. When we receive into our minds what God's Word says, it is that which brings us life. It's that reminder that when the day has taken its toll on us, when it has, as I like to say, it's run us through the ringer. It, the, the word is life-giving, right? It's life-giving. I, can, I could try to find all other sorts of ways to make my spirit feel fed, and, and to, to, to re, but it's the word that's going to do that to me. And just in the company of believers to say, remember the graciousness of God and remember his compassion that's being shown towards you. And don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget it. To believe the truth is to receive the truth because God's revealed that truth to you. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that the reason these things are precious to you is because God in his mercy and in his sovereignty has given you the ability to understand the truth of this. The truth that when the accuser tries to tell you, you're unworthy of God's love. You're unworthy of his compassion. We know we're unworthy, and that's what could make God even more worthy. That yes, we are unworthy, and yet he's that good. See, the accuser tries to tell us things that we already know. When he comes alongside of you and says, you're not worthy of God's love, tell Satan, I know I'm not. So it makes God even more glorious. I'm not worthy of it. And yet he showed his love to me. And he showed his love to me for reasons I can't answer. I can't tell you why he saved me. Except for the fact he saves us for his glory. He saves us that we might glorify him even through all the warts. (laughs) Going to glorify me. That's why I saved you. Verse 5 says, He hath given meat unto them that fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. How thankful we are that he is always mindful of his covenant. Think about what he did for the Israelites in the wilderness. He daily fed his people with manna. He daily fed them with what they needed. He fed his people and they were brought to the knowledge of who he was. We understand Christ declared himself to be the bread of life, the very bread of God. He is that living bread. Just as he took care of the Israelites in the wilderness, he takes care of us every single day. He is the living bread. And we ought to ever be mindful of his covenant. Remember, we've talked about how a covenant is a promise that God makes. 
To be ever mindful of it means that God is never going to break that covenant. He's never going to go back on it. To be mindful of it doesn't mean that he's, he's wavering back and forth whether or not he's going to keep it or not, depending upon what we do or don't do. He's going to be ever mindful to keep that covenant that he's never going to break it. What does his covenant contain? Well, his covenant contains every good that we need. His covenant contains every supply His covenant also contains every healing balm, one old Puritan put it, every healing balm that you need. Every wound that you incur in the battle, he has a healing balm for it. You know, every believer here tonight, you have a lot of battle scars. You have wounds from head to toe. You try to live out in that world and you try to live, try to do anything for the cause of God, try to stand up for Christ and you are going going to be battered by the world but realize that every wound you receive, you're receiving to the glory of God. And that he has a healing balm for it. He not only has a balm for every wound, but he also has an answer for every sorrow. every relief for everything we need. His promises are always suited for everything we could possibly deal with. This covenant that the Lord is ever mindful of, which if He could forget the covenant or neglect the covenant, if He could do that in one single instance, if He would be unfaithful to His covenant one single time, He would cease to be God. And yet he will never cease to be God. Ever mindful. How do we honor God? We honor God by believing this with our whole heart. We fully believe the truth. Verse 6, He hath showed His people the power of His works, that He may give them the heritage of the heathen. God's almighty power is displayed a bunch, many times, especially in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, but many times when he had to deal with the enemies. His almighty power was displayed against the enemies of God. His promises were fulfilled. He has shown the people the power of his works. He has shown his people the power of his wrath. He's demonstrated displeasure against sin. Yet, notice again what he says. He has shown his people the power of his works. He is gracious, full of compassion. He's ever mindful of his covenant towards his people. He has showed his people the power of his works. And then look at verse 7. Specifically, the psalmist says the works of his hands are verity and judgment. All his commandments are sure. That word verity and judgment, it literally means faithful and just. So the works of his hands are faithful and just. 
Everything he has appointed, everything he has done, everything that he will do, he is doing in faithfulness and completely just. He shines forth. When we aren't faithful, God is faithful. When we aren't truthful, God is truthful. And we all know tonight we are not always faithful and we are not always truthful. And yet he's always faithful. The works of his hands. His wisdom shines forth and it's manifested to us. We see these things. And he says all of his commandments are sure. Something that is sure means it's firm and it's stable. His gospel is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Everything he has said, every word he has spoken, it is unchangeable. His promises are certain. He cannot lie. And because he cannot lie, he will never go back on his commandments. They are sure and they will stand forever. Verse 8, they stand fast forever and are done in truth and uprightness. One commentator put it this way. He said, none of his words fall to the ground. Not one of his purposes is broken, nor do any of his promises fail. They stand fast forever and ever. They are the same in every age and throughout all generations. They are all the fruits of grace. They are the many manifestations of grace, so many displays of it. They are so many parts of the everlasting covenant. They are all fulfilled in truth and uprightness. His commandments always done in truth. Verse 9, look at this first phrase. He sent redemption unto His people. He sent redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is being saved from sin. Not just being saved from sin, but being saved also from the misery that sin brings. He sent redemption. To send redemption to remove our greatest problem. Our greatest problem was sin. Our greatest problem is is that we have sinned against the Holy God. Our greatest problem is, is that our sin separated us from this Holy God. Notice he says redemption was sent to you. You didn't go find redemption. You didn't go seek after it. He sent redemption to you. God gets all the glory for your redemption. We say that often around here, don't we? We give God all the glory, all the credit for our redemption. But understand, he says he sent redemption unto his people. He commanded his covenant forever. That means he commanded that covenant of redemption to stand forever And notice what it says, holy and reverend is his name. His covenant is forever. God made specific promises to Abraham. He made specific promises to Israel. He made specific promises to David at different points in history. But essentially those promises that even he made to them, he's made to us as well. It was made known 
you realize our redemption, the Bible talks about it was in the fullness of time. The Redeemer, Christ the Redeemer was sent. He was sent by the Father and by the Spirit. Christ carried out the work of redemption perfectly and completely. Completely. He didn't say, I'm going to do most of the work. He filled it out completely. He said, this is redemption. This is my work. This is not your work. This is my work. And Christ obediently allowed himself to be taken, to suffer inhumane things, to suffer the worst of all things and to be found guilty of something he was not guilty of. And yet it was by his sacrifice and by his shed blood an unchangeable covenant. He's commanded his covenant forever. When God gives a command, that command will always stand. That command will never be revoked. That command will never be changed. It will never be altered. It's interesting to me, and I, I honestly never really thought about what the psalmist was saying here when he said his name is holy and reverend. We think about his holiness, but notice he says his name it is who he has actually revealed himself to be. When we sing hymns like that, holy, 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 we're singing the name of God. That song over the years has gotten a little bit more difficult for me to actually sing because I begin to understand more and more that even, even if you read some of the historical books about the Jews themselves and you read back into history, there was a point in time when they were even afraid to say the name of God. Now, sadly, we see a world that uses the name of God as, as a way of profanity or we see it a way that there's no, there's no reverence being given to it. And sometimes we, we just say his name and don't think about the reality that this is the holy name of God. And this holiness and this reverend, this is the very ground of our faith. His holiness and his greatness. It all comes together to understand the redemption of Christ unto His people in every period of time and throughout all generations. He is forever holy. And then verse 10, the psalmist says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That reads like the Proverbs. Reads like Ecclesiastes. He says it's the beginning of wisdom. In order to be a fear of the Lord, there must be a saving knowledge of the Lord. In order for me to fear the Lord, there has to be a knowledge of who God actually is. Do we truly understand how holy God is? Do we truly understand that this is a God who is to be feared? This saving knowledge of the Lord 
We understand it and we see it in the very person of Christ. In order for me to apprehend who God is and understand the redemption that I have in Christ Jesus, before there can be any faith in God or any fear of God, there has to be a knowledge of who He is. Sadly, over the generations, we have tried to make this process happen more quickly. We've tried to say and push the process along and say, you understand who God is, right? You know who He is. You know He's holy. You know He's righteous. I'm not sure we've always known just how holy and righteous He is. We've tried to push people to make these decisions for Christ but long before they're ever ready to even think about that because they're not even, they don't even have a knowledge of God yet. But it's by fear. This fear of the Lord, he says, that's the beginning of wisdom. By a fear of the Lord, I begin to understand what faith in God is. I can't have faith in God until I fear Him. I can't have salvation until I know what I'm being saved from. I can't can't understand redemption until I understand why did I need to be redeemed in the first place? Because I have sinned against a thrice holy God. From the womb, I'm a sinner. All I've ever known is sin. And yet, I have sinned against a holy God. And so the fear of God is where it all begins. The true fruit of a life that is in Christ, begins with the fear. The beginning of true wisdom to even begin to acknowledge Christ into our minds and to believe on Him for all the blessings that that brings, there must be a fear of God. That's what produces this spiritual understanding. It's the fear of God that also motivates me to continue to desire to keep the commandments of God. The person who understands the fear of the Lord, understands faith, understands that it's in Christ, there is going to be a desire to keep His commandments. Now, will we do it perfectly? No, none of us do. But desire is there. I want to, I want to keep the commandments of God. The essence of believing in Christ is to walk in His precepts and walk in Him. He says that not only is this the beginning of wisdom, but He says a good understanding have all they that do His commandments. As we walk in the commandments of God, we have a greater and greater understanding of who He actually is. Those that do His commandments, His praise endures forever. The praise of the Lord will be without end. There will never be a time throughout all of eternity where our praise for God ceases. There's not going to come a day when you can stop praising God now. Not that you would want to. 
you won't be able to stop. It's ceaseless praise. His praise will endure forever. There will always be reasons to praise Him. Folks, apply it to our life now. There are times in our life when we don't feel like praising God. There are times when we say, it, it just, I, I, cannot, uh, I can't find any reason to praise Him. There's always reasons to praise God. We're supposed to praise God in the valley as much as we praise God on the mountaintop. If we truly believe God is sovereign and providential, even in the roughest patches of our life, we're still supposed to be praising God. This writer understood something about the praise of God. He understood that it is of utmost importance that in order for us to praise and worship God, that our hearts have to be engaged in a right manner. To have a right manner has to be a heart that is engaged in that which is true about what God says about Himself, not what man wants God to be. One of the greatest efforts that's taking place now is to change who God is. And if I can stop the idea that I have to fear this God, that I have to reverence this God, I promise you it'll change even our very desires to want to live for Him. Because once we lose the reverence of God, you will lose everything. Corporate worship. When we gather together, whether it's on a Sunday, whether it's on a Wednesday, this is the way God meant for it to be. He didn't mean for us to worship by ourselves on an island somewhere, isolated. He said, no, one of the great joys of being one of my people is to actually gather together in corporate worship and worship me together. And yet, sometimes what we need the most of is the thing we neglect. Worship is not just an idea. Worship is commanded. The fear of God is something that we are to remain fully conscious of every single day. We really should never come to a gathering like this or any gathering where God's people are and say, this is just another meeting. Every time our hearts ought to be prepared. That might be reciting God's works in your life. That might, that might be with your family before you ever even get in the car to come to church is to just sit there together and say, look, let's recite His wonderful works one more time. Let's talk one more time about what He's done for me. One more time. It can never be something that is just done in a half-hearted manner. Remember the psalmist said, with my whole heart, I'm going to do this. With everything that I am. If we love the Lord, we're going to love His works. 
If we love God, we're going to love His commandments. We're going to delight to do His law. We're going to delight in His commandments. We're not going to find His commandments burdensome or grievous. We're not going to find it as this is too tough. We're going to, we're going to delight in God. We're going to rejoice because when we consider the alternative, we consider where would we be apart from God's work in our life. Where would our souls be destined for apart from God's work in our life? Where would we be without God sending redemption to us? Where would we be if God didn't take the initiative to open our eyes to our need? Where would we be? Folks, when you deal with people in the world and you deal with people who don't understand who God is, realize without that understanding of who God is, there is no hope. There's no place to look because there's nothing that's stable. There's nothing that will stand. There's nothing that, will, that they can promise will be there tomorrow. But no matter what, brings, what the next day brings, God is always the same. He's not changing. God makes us consider. But not only do we have the privilege of corporate worship, we have the privilege of even at times of private worship. I could ask us today, how do we do when we're together? But I also say, how do we do when we're by ourselves? Are we meditating on God's word? Are we thinking upon his works? And I'm not talking about a couple minutes here and there. I'm talking about my whole heart is given over to meditating on his works throughout the entire day. I'm constantly thinking about who God is. Thinking about that his, the praise of the Lord endures forever. I don't know what forever is like. <laughs> we don't. We don't know what it's like. But yet, all throughout Scripture, we keep hearing about God is forever. Our redemption is forever. Our eternity is forever. You're never going to, const- you're never going to grasp it, what it means right now. But for all of eternity, read the accounts in Revelation when they are around the throne of God and they're casting their crowns at his feet. It's endless, ceaseless worship. It's never, it's not stopping. And the people that are there are not there saying, give me, give me, give me. They're there worshiping the lamb who was slain for them. I, I, I don't know if there's going to be anything greater than the worship we're going to experience in heaven if you know Christ. I, I don't, I can say that there is nothing greater. There's nothing in this world that's going to compare to that. And yet, Christ gives us this picture of worship now, and it's just a picture of what worship that's being conducted 
Can you imagine all of everybody from every generation, from every age, people around the throne of God with no sin, worshiping God? See, because even sometimes in our worship, sin is still a problem. But not when you're in heaven. It will be sinless worship. Bow down before him. Will we remember what he's done for us? I think we will. And he says, yet I want you to remember them now. His works are meant to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and he's full of compassion. I hope and I pray that that'll encourage you. And it encourage you to think and to consider his wonderful works. Because every work that he's done is indeed wonderful. Let's close by singing the hymn on page number 36. We'll sing Immortal Invisible. And as we conclude that hymn, we'll pray together and then we'll be on our way. Hymn number 36.